All right, good morning, Calvary Church, and happy Mother's Day. I won't make you stand up, but we appreciate you guys. We love you, love our moms. Um, yeah, well, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Church, and I want to just say welcome. We are so glad you're here with us this morning to worship uh, our Savior Jesus and to hear from his word. Uh, we have been moving through the book of John, and we're going to continue doing that today. So you can go ahead and uh, turn to John chapter 5. I'm muted. I'm not muted. Can you hear me? Kind of? Maybe? Sorry, I'm getting conflicting uh, signs from the soundboard. All right, there we go. Uh, turn to John chapter 5. Without any uh, further ado, uh, we are going to be looking at this entire chapter um, as Jesus begins to tell us more about who he is. As you're turning there, join with me. Uh, let's pray for our time studying God's word together. Father, we love you and we are thankful to be able to gather as your people and to hear from your word. I pray that you would help us to come with, with open arms, uh, with open hearts to hear what you have for us. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this morning would be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. John chapter 5 opens with a story of healing. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he encounters a man who's been crippled for 38 years. And miraculously, Jesus heals this man of his infirmity. He, he restores him to full health. But despite this really good news, this really great day in this man's life, the Jewish leaders who observe this healing are furious. They're fuming mad. They, they hate that this has happened. And they, in their minds, see Jesus as violating the Sabbath law, the command not to work on the Sabbath day by performing a healing. And they see this man uh, as violating the Sabbath law for picking up his mat after he is healed and able to walk for the first time in nearly four decades. Uh, instead of rejoicing, they are angry at this. This is because the Old Testament commandments to rest on the Sabbath day had been distorted and changed over time. They had added more and more rules defining what exactly it meant to work um, until they had this huge list of, of regulations of exactly what you could do and what you couldn't do. And apparently that include picking up a mat and walking for the first time. Uh, and so eventually they had lost the point of this Sabbath and, and they can respond only with anger. And Jesus confronting them, he, he doesn't argue about their rules. He doesn't go into a discussion of what is or isn't work. He does that in some other places in the gospel. Jesus had a habit of healing on the Sabbath. I don't think that was an accident. Um, instead, he actually agrees with their basic idea. He says, yes, I am working. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working in verse 16. Essentially, he's saying that the father and I are simply continuing the work that we have always been doing. He is equating himself and his work with God the Father. He is doing what only God can do. Now, the Jewish people, when they looked at the Sabbath, they said, well, obviously God's not breaking the Sabbath, right? He's God. Uh, he is above these rules that he has given us. He is the one who created and, and sustains and rules the universe. And they believe that God is constantly at work, holding all things together, keeping us alive, keeping the world going as it, as it always has been. He's at work. And so to Jesus, to say that he is working as the Father is working, he says, I am also exempt from this rule. I am also continuing the, to do this work because I am doing the work that only God can do. 
He is upholding and renewing creation. And the Jewish leaders, this is the reason uh, they get even more mad. It's one thing to break the Sabbath law. It's another thing to essentially say, I am above this regulation. I, in fact, am God. And the work that God is doing is the exact same work I am doing. They understood clearly what he was saying, and they were outraged. And we see here the first signs on the road to the cross. We see the Jewish leaders decide, we have to kill this person. Because he has made himself equal with God. He is claiming both divine identity and divine authority. Look at verse 18. It says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The whole point of John's gospel is that we might know who Jesus is. That we might know Jesus and that we might believe he is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that we might have life, an eternal life. To know, to believe, and to receive life. And here Jesus is telling us in himself, in his own words, exactly who he is. He is God, fully divine, and possessing total authority. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to begin to study who Jesus is in the Gospel of John and see what it means for us today, what it means for our lives, and what it means to believe in this one as the source of our life. Jesus is going to tell us in this lengthy dialogue, we're going to read through this this chapter where Jesus describes to us in his own words who he is, and he's going to explain how it is that he is equal with God, how we can trust what he is telling us. And because before we can believe in Jesus, it is crucial that we know exactly who he is, both his identity and his authority. And those are going to be the things we're focusing on today, his identity and his authority. Now, there are a lot of ways someone could misunderstand this thing in verse, uh, in verse 17 that says he made himself equal with God. And the Jewish leaders probably thought that he's making himself his own different God, right? He's, there's, there's God who we believe in as the Jewish people, and then he's saying, I'm some other God. And that would have been really common in that day. There were a lot of religions that had many, many gods over different areas. And there were even religions that had these demigods, right? A, a half-human, half-God kind of hybrid something else. But that is absolutely not what Jesus is saying here at all. And so he needs to explain carefully exactly what he means, exactly what he is saying, and how he is equal with God. So he begins by describing his, his divine identity through his relationship with God. Then he's going to describe his complete authority over humanity. And finally, he's going to provide multiple witnesses who can authenticate his testimony about his identity and his authority. So we're going to look at his relationship with God, his relationship to humanity, and then the sources uh, that authenticate what he's saying, that prove what he is saying to be trustworthy. So here's the first one we have. Jesus displays his true identity by his unique relationship with God the Father. Look at me at John 5, verses 18 through 23. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son." 
that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus starts by talking about this relationship between the Father and the Son. By the Father, he's referring to God. The, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, would refer to God as their father as a nation, but they wouldn't say that uh, personally. They wouldn't ever pray as an individual to God our Father. Uh, only Jesus begins doing this, but th- this is God who he's speaking of. And he, he describes the Son. He's talking about himself, the Son of God, these two figures here. And from the beginning, uh, these two are not in competition. The Son is not against the Father. The Son is completely and totally with the Father. There's no competition. There's no uh, uh, vying for power or position or authority. They are completely in lockstep, aligned in purpose, power, honor, and essence, which is what they are. They share the same being. And he gives us five, uh, in these first five verses, he gives us ways that they are unified. He tells them the things that they share in common, the things that bring them together, doing the same Uh, doing the same thing. So first, he talks about the work. He says, the son is not doing anything. I'm not doing anything that the father has not given me to do. I'm not doing anything that is not the father's plan to do. Everything I do is what the father is doing. I join in that work. They are completely unified in their goals and their plans and the activity that we see here. This includes everything we've seen from Jesus, his teaching, his actions towards people, his miracles, everything we read about in the Gospels. This is the work of the Father that the Son is joined into doing. They share the same activity and work. Next, it says that they share the same mission or vision. It says the Father shows the Son everything. This is how the Son is able to join in that work because it's not hidden from Jesus, what, what the Father is doing. The Father brings him in and shows him all of it. He's in on the plan. He's in on the mission from, from the beginning. There's a shared vision, a shared knowledge here. Shared work and knowledge come from a shared love. Why does the Father share this mission and this work and this purpose with Jesus? Because he loves him, it says. Everything the Son says and does is consistent with what the Father has shown him, and the love of God for the Son is what fuels all of this. At the heart of everything we see in the Bible, at the heart of everything we see Jesus doing, why he came, how he teaches, how he loves us, behind all of that is the love of the Father for the Son. The love of God is at the heart of everything. Everything flows from this. The mission comes out of God's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. This is crazy stuff. This is, this is incredible. This vision into God that Jesus is letting us in here. And then he's going to give us an example of, of what this looks like, a little bit more tangible, right? There's this idea of work and mission. What does this look like? He next talks about giving life. They both give life. God is the source of life, meaning that there is nothing that exists that God didn't make. That's from Genesis 1-1, from the very first verse of the Bible. We know that God is the creator. Things come from God or they aren't. But it also tells us that God is the one who sustains the universe, that we would cease to be right now if God were not actively keeping us here. Everything would just cease. So God is constantly working to make sure we are, we are living Now, it says here that the Father has also granted the Son to have life in himself and to grant life to others, physical and spiritual life. 
He's saying that the Son has the ability, has the mission to give life to whoever he will, to save in Jesus. Jesus is not taking us some other place. Jesus is taking us to himself. He's the source of life. He's not just the way to get to the life. He is the life. And this is something, obviously, that no person can do. No prophet, no servant in the entire history of the Old Testament of the Bible. No one can do this except God. No one can have life in themselves except God. The Father and Son are united in will and purpose, never contradicting, never competing, giving life through the Son. He continues this. He talks about giving life, and then he talks about judgment. The Father has also given the responsibility to judge the world to the Son, to Jesus. And again, this is a divine work that no one else can do. There's no created thing, there's no human being that could ever stand in judgment over the entire world, that could ever judge the good from the bad, that could never see into the heart of people, into their actions and and everything that they've ever done before. This is something that only God can do. But here we know that it tells us that Jesus is the one, the Son is the one who will sit in judgment over the entire universe, over the entire creation. And the irony here is that these Jews are attacking the very one who is the cosmic judge of the universe. That's a really bad idea, right? You don't want to antagonize the judge. That's exactly what they're doing. Bad idea. Uh, Not going to end well. God the Father gives judgment to the Son so that he would be revered in exactly the same way as the Father. And that takes us to the final thing that they share here in these verses, honor. The Son is honored in exactly the same way the Father is. This is not talking just about like, oh, good job, you've done good, great job. No, this is talking about worship. This is talking about praise. This is talking about honor as the one who rightly judges all things, the one who gives life itself. That can't be spoken of any created thing. Nothing that is made can receive the same honor as the maker. For the son to receive the same honor, he must be God himself. Nothing except God can be rightly honored as God should be honored. So what is Jesus saying in all these things? He's saying that he, the son, is God. His identity and his authority are completely and wholly divine. He does what only God can do, give life, judge evil, receive honor and worship And he doesn't act separately or in opposition to the Father, but united together in all things, in complete union. And they do this out of the love between the Father and the Son. The Son does not act without the Father. Now, you might say, this is a lot, right? Uh, John, you've taken us in just like five verses into some things that are really difficult to understand. And they were at that time, and they continue to be now. And Christians for 2,000 years have read the book of John and said, whoa, that's deep. That's heavy. Uh, what Jesus is taking us to, what he's describing here is what we call the Trinity. That God, the one, is three persons, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They're distinguished by those, by those relationships, by those names. The Father is the Father of the Son. The Son is the Son of the Father, and the Spirit is the love between them. And beyond that, they are unified. They are one God. They work and act together. They share the same characteristics and attributes. And that causes our brain to short-circuit a little bit. Because we're like, I, I don't hold on. Say that again, Jesus. Jesus has opened the curtain for us to see God. 
And so it's not that surprising that this is difficult for us, right? A God who we can completely con- like just outline and understand, say, got it, easy. That's not a very good God, is it? That's something that we can create, something that we are able to comprehend. We are more complicated than a God of our own creation. But a God who has made us is so much more complicated, so much more glorious, so much bigger than we can say. And so Jesus is helping us. He's giving us the words to see who God is, to see how the the Son and the Father interact together, how they work together, how they love each other. Because he himself is God, the holy creator of everything. So this is a lot, but but what does this mean for us here? Why is Jesus taking us directly here? Jesus is using this opportunity of, of the people recognizing that he is making himself equal with God to explain to them what this means and to draw them into the, the understanding of who he is and who God is. And it means that God, that Jesus is far greater than we can know. Right? Jesus, there's so much more than, than we can talk about today or in our lifetime. He is God himself. But this is who the Bible tells us we must believe in. We must believe this divine triune Jesus, this, this trinity in order to be saved. This is the one who we place our faith into. And so it's not something optional that we can say, ah, pass. I don't, I don't want to talk about that. That is who we must place our faith in. A faith in Jesus who is not God is not a saving faith. And really, the entire point all that we do by following Jesus, the entire point of Scripture is to know God, is to know our Creator. This is what we were created to do. And so it is worth our time and our effort, no matter how few they ultimately are. We're never going to get there. Even in eternity, we will spend eternity as followers of Jesus knowing God and thinking about God and learning more and more and never reaching the end. And that is beautiful. That is the best hope that we have. Better than anything else, we get to know and learn about God. And think about it in the terms of the relationships we have among people. If we have a a spouse or a son or a daughter, and we say, I'm good, I know enough, I don't need to spend some time with them. Not the best relationship, right? Even human people who are finite, who are limited, who are, who are small in comparison to God, we can spend our entire life learning more about them and enjoying that process of knowing and being known. How much more can we do this with God? It is worth our time to struggle with this idea of the Trinity, to struggle with this complexity, and to end up just saying, we love you, God. We worship you and we will spend the rest of our eternity knowing you and loving you more. This is what the Christian life is about. So Jesus has shown us his unique relationship with the Father that shows his divinity. Next, he moves to talk about Jesus and humanity, about his relationship to us. Jesus displays his complete authority over humanity. So look with me again. This is verse 24 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Son has life in himself, or so, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to his li- have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus' divine identity means that he possesses complete authority over creation and, and over us, over humanity, all people who have ever lived and will ever live. He is the difference between life and death. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus connects this belief with life. And this is something we saw in John 3.16. We're going to see it over and over in John. Belief in Jesus brings life, and a lack of belief leaves us in death. Jesus saves. We must believe in him. And those who refuse to believe receive judgment. Jesus gives two reasons for this complete authority. First is because he has authority over life. And we talked about this. Jesus has life within himself and he grants life to those whom he will. Jesus is the way we can live. He uh, is the one who is the creator, scripture tells us in Colossians chapter one. He was involved in creating us and making us and forming us. He is the one who is holding all things together, Colossians one also tells us. And not only that, he is the one who gives us new spiritual life. When we were dead in our sin, when we were running away from God, Jesus is the one who turns us around and brings us back. When we were dead and helpless, Jesus is the one who raises us up and breathes life into us and pulls us back. All of this is in Jesus. We have life in him, and he's the only one who can take us from death to life. Jesus is the Lord of life. And the second reason is because Jesus has authority for judgment. Everyone who's ever existed, you and I, one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will see our sin on display. We will see everything that we have ever done. And all uh, on our own, we are going to be found guilty of sin against God, of refusal to believe, of refusal to follow his, his will, to refusal to follow his authority. And we will face evil and face a resurrection of judgment, it says. But for those who are in Christ, those who have believed in him, have received life, we will not see that record brought upon us. We will see Jesus' pure, clean, perfect record given to us. And we will be declared not guilty. We will be raised to an eternal resurrection of life. This is good news. God gives Jesus this authority, it says, because he is the son of man. This is looking back to Daniel 7, when there's a vision that says, God, the ancient of days, coming on the clouds, will bring this, this, um, this figure, one like a son of man. And this person is going to receive all authority and glory and sovereign power over all nations and all peoples. This prophesied hope, this one who comes to rule with righteousness, with justice, with truth, this is Jesus. Jesus' authority covers us from life to death and beyond. Total and complete authority. And so what, what does this mean for us? It means everything for us, doesn't it? Jesus is divine. He is God, and he has complete authority over life and death and judgment. This means that nothing in our lives does not belong to Jesus, whether we have recognized that or not. Whether we have said, I will follow you as my Savior and Lord or not, Jesus rules everything. It is so easy for us to compartmentalize our lives, isn't it? 
I, I do this all the time. This is a box for this. This is a box for this. Jesus, you can have these five things. The rest is mine. And we can just create these barriers for us. Whether it be Sunday morning versus Monday morning. Whether it be my finances versus my quiet time. Whatever it is, we separate the areas that we will give to Jesus' authority and the ones we keep for ourselves. Pastor Tim Keller speaks about a conversation he had with a woman when he was sharing the gospel. And she reacted very strongly against this idea that we are saved completely by grace, that we don't do anything, that we don't contribute anything to this process. It's just Jesus who saves us. And she said, if that's true, then there's nothing he can't ask of me. There's nothing that I can hold back because he has given me everything. And she's right. There's nothing we can hold back. We have been given everything in Jesus. We are made for Jesus. He owns it all. He gives us our existence. He sustains our very life, and he rightly passes judgment over the way that we live now. And so Jesus has authority over our marriage, over our singleness, over our entertainment and our work. He has authority over how we treat people, how we use our smartphones, the things that we watch and spend our time on, everything. The things we don't like to think about. Things we say, oh, that's separate. That's just for fun. No, everything. Does it bring glory to Christ? Does it follow him? When we understand who Jesus is, when we understand that divine identity, and we understand this complete and total authority, it kind of makes the Jewish leaders here seem absolutely out of their minds to be coming at Jesus and complaining about, uh, about him. They are judging the judge. But the truth is, we are doing the same thing all the time when we pick and choose what we will give to Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's craziness when we see beyond what, what's right in front of us and see the ultimate ruler and creator of all things who has saved us by his grace. We have to give it all to him. Now these are big claims that Jesus is making. Yeah, divine identity and complete authority. Big stuff. And so Jesus says, you don't even have to just take my word for it. There is a lot of evidence. There are others who speak to authenticate my testimony. Jesus' word about himself in chapter 5 and onwards, it is authenticated by these other sources. Just as the son doesn't work on his own, his testimony about himself does not stand on its own. Now, Jewish law, very similar to ours, would require two witnesses to authenticate what someone gave testimony to. And Jesus is going to give more than that. In these next verses here, which we're going to kind of hop through a little bit, we're going to see that Jesus provides more than enough testimony to be a valid testimony. These things authenticate him as signs and evidence of who he is and the authority that he has. So first, in verse 32 through 35, Jesus uh, says that he has, there's prophetic testimony that speaks to him. There's prophetic testimony. A prophet, just like in the Old Testament, these people who have been sent to speak for God spoke about who he was. And he's talking about John the Baptist. Uh, and we saw him earlier in John uh, chapter 1 and 3, that his ministry, he was sent by God, he was commissioned to go and prepare the way for Jesus. And we see him taking his own disciples and saying, it's not about me, it's about him. And I need to go down and he needs to go up. Follow that guy. Speaking for God, he is a, a human mouthpiece to say, look to Jesus, this is the one. He is who we've been waiting for. There's prophetic testimony. Second, there's miraculous testimony. In verse 36, Jesus says there's something greater than John that's come. 
And it's talking about this work that he's been doing, his ministry, and specifically the miracles that he's been doing. And we've seen a couple of these. He has turned water into wine. He has healed a crippled man just by speaking. And there's a lot more to come. The entire book of John is built around a series of signs that it talks about. These things that point us to the truth. When Jesus does something miraculous, it's not just for kicks. It's to show us the reality of who he is. It's to authenticate what he has taught about himself. To show that he does have that authority over creation, over matter, and what we're made of. To heal a man who is crippled. To give a blind man his sight. To turn water into wine. And to show that he also has power over our spiritual reality too. To forgive us our sin. To make us a new person. To give us life and resurrection. More things to come, but these signs point to Jesus. And finally, uh, an even greater one that he speaks of than that in verses 37 and 38, there is divine testimony. He says, the Father speaks and testifies about who I am. The Father speaks to my identity and authority. And it's hard to argue with God, right? Whenever you can say, also, God says so, you're like, well, that's pretty good. Um, He's the one who made the universe, uh, and so this should not be lightly dismissed. And and the Father's testimony is related to these. He is the one who sent John. He is the one who directs the Son to these signs. At Jesus' baptism, there is an audible voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father points to the divinity of Jesus. And lastly, in verse 39, and then in 45 through 46, there's a scriptural testimony about Jesus. The Old Testament, the, the Jewish scripture of that time, it points to him. Things written centuries before are fulfilled in him. Jesus says that scripture doesn't contain life in itself. It points to the source. It points to the eternal life that can be found only in him. He says, in fact, that scripture testifies about him because it was written about him. All of the Bible, all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. And it culminates, it brings us to this crescendo, this high point when Jesus finally comes, when he shows up and he says, everything you've been reading, this is it. This is where we've been going the whole time. In fact, he says, we do not know scripture if it doesn't lead us to Jesus. We can spend our entire life studying the teaching of Moses as the Jewish leaders did. We can have the best quiet time and and read all of the commentaries and break it down and know Greek and Hebrew, but if it doesn't lead us to Jesus, then we've missed it. And the scriptures speak in condemnation of us because we do not take the truth. We do not follow the sign where it points. Belief in scripture leads us to belief in Jesus. And so these witnesses spoke in Jesus' day, and they speak to us today as well. We have the record of the prophetic testimony. We have the record of his miraculous signs. And ultimately, we have God's word that points us and leads us to his truth. The word that the Father and the Son and the Spirit work through every time we read it to bring us to Jesus. There is more than enough evidence to believe in Jesus' divinity and his authority. So as we wrap up today, I think the question we have to ask is, why do we fail to believe so often? Why do we fail to believe? Multiple times in this passage, Jesus accuses his audience. He says, you do not believe. You refuse to come to me. You do not receive me. Why? Why is this so hard for us? Why do we reject authority? The Bible tells us that it's part of our fallen human nature 
to fight against authority, to fight against it. Uh, the original sin in Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, third chapter of the Bible, was choosing to disobey and disbelieve God. To say that I know better than you. I won't trust you. I won't listen to you. And every human being since then has followed in that same pattern. We don't need to be taught how to disobey. We don't need to be taught how to disbelieve what we're told. We know it instinctively. It is in us. Moms know that, right? Mother's Day. Kids don't listen. Working on that. It's instinctual. Um, And once more, our particular culture, Western, American, whatever you want to call it, our culture that we live and breathe in has spent the past 400 years building a distrust of authority. We have said that maybe our deepest held belief is that an individual has the right to self-determination, to say, this is who I am, this is what I will do, and it is good. That's, that, that's at the heart of so much of what we do, the heart of so much of our arguments and culture, so much of our popular culture and movies, everything. It's building to that idea. And anyone or anything that limits our individual freedom is seen as an enemy, even if it is God. And if God keeps me from being authentic to what I want and what I feel, then God is an oppressor and God is against me. We have rejected the authority of God. Jesus talks about this refusal to, rec- to recognize authority. In verse 37 and 38, this is what he says. He says, His voice you have not heard, his form you have not seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. He's essentially saying, you are spiritually deaf, you do not hear. You are spiritually blind, you do not see. You are spiritually broke, you do not have the word of God within you. And you are spiritually dead, you do not believe. When we do not believe, we are rejecting the testimony that God has given. We are rejecting the identity that Jesus has revealed to us, and we are rejecting the authority that he has over all of life. We refuse to believe that our existence comes from him. We actually deny these two main things that Jesus, that, that build into Jesus' authority. We deny that he is our source of life. We want to say, I can define myself. I don't need anybody else. I am sufficient on my own. That is disbelieving what the Bible tells us about Jesus, what the Bible tells us about God, that we come from him, that we are utterly dependent on him with each and every breath that we have. We deny the truth of of Jesus' judgment. We say, no one can judge me. I get to decide what I follow. I get to decide what this scripture tells me. I get to decide the areas that I will follow and care about and the ones that I'll politely ignore or deny. We want to pick and choose what is good and what is bad. We want to determine for ourselves if we are worthy of being called good. And we live as if we're above the law and there are no consequences We are denying the truth that Jesus tells us we are not believing. And finally, we reject authority because of a lack of love. This is what verse 42 says. Jesus tells us, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Love of the Father and the Son is the foundation of everything that God does. It is the reason why God comes to us, why the Son is sent, why he loves us with the same love that the Father has for the Son, that the Son has for the Father. And ultimately, what Jesus is asking us is to love him. He's saying, if you love me, you will believe me. 
If you believe in me, you will have life in me and you will give yourself to me, holy, not holding anything back. See, the truth is that the authority of Jesus in our lives is not an enslaving authority. It's not an oppressive authority. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and this burden is light. No matter how much it cuts against the grain of our sinful hearts who are clinging to our own autonomy, our own authority. Jesus says, this burden is light. He says that it is good. That it comes not to enslave us, but to give us freedom, to give us life and life abundantly. The same love that the Father has for the Son is given to us so that we might love Jesus. And so really the question at the end of of chapter 5 is do you love Jesus? And if you love him, have you surrendered everything to him? Have you made him Lord and Savior? He is calling us to delight in his divine identity, to rest in his complete authority, and to believe in him. And in him we will have life. Let's pray together, church. Father, we are thankful that you have taken the initiative when we were lost, when we are deaf and blind and dead, that you come to us and you show us who you are. We are thankful that even though we can't understand it all, you show us the beauty and the love and the greatness of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Father, I pray that today we would respond with love to the love that you have shown us. That we would leave our fighting behind, that we would leave our our clawing for whatever we have and, and we would find rest in Jesus. That we would love him. That we would believe in him. And we would experience that new and abounding life in Jesus. Father, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.